welcome to Cancria, home of Canada's Cream Meter. My name is Zig Smith. Hey, my name is Sebastian. And Sebastian, you uh, you kicked off the week with a bit of an interview earlier today, I believe. Well, I didn't kick off the week. It's more like I ended the week with an interview. But, you know, I had an interview, for sure, with Emmett Michael, who is a uh, up-and-coming uh, folk artist from out in Edmonton. And we had a nice conversation. Uh, we also had a really nice, uh, I don't want to say off-camera, off-mic, I guess you'd say. Yeah, off-mic. That is the common term. Yeah, we had an yeah. off-mic conversation about uh, botany and gardening as well. All right. So this week, I want to kick off with a story about Eurovision. Okay. Now, our regular listeners are probably exasperated with the amount of times I talk about Eurovision, which is one of, I think it's the world's longest running uh, singing, a televised singing competition. Uh, It is also the world's largest televised singing competition because it has an audience that includes China, Australia, nearly all of Europe. And uh, I think the Americans joined in last, uh, in 2017, 2018. So just a bit of background. It is incredibly camp. Past winners have included Celine Dion and ABBA, for example. I think it was really the the peak campness. Uh, If you want to get an idea of what it's about, the Eurovision film, which is on Netflix, if you sort of ignore Will Ferrell, it's a pretty decent Eurovision film. Don't make people watch that movie. It's Don't, I like that movie. I no really like that movie. Watch that movie. And there were some great cameos. Conchita Verst was cameoed in it. Anyways, I'm all about the Eurovision movie. Well, last year, for the first time in its history, Eurovision had to cancel uh, as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic. Mm. Very understandable. These things happen. It happened to almost every other event that took place in the whole of uh, the year. I think they could have figured it out, except the lockdowns started rolling out like a month before the, the competition was supposed to happen. So they just didn't have enough time to to figure out what to do. So I, I think they probably would have gone ahead anyway if they had a little bit more time. Yeah, I agree with you. So, But what it meant was a lot of those singers who had you know prepared songs and started making their way to to Rotterdam in the Netherlands they really kind of lost out on this we didn't get to see amazing outfits we didn't get to see their ridiculous dance routines we we did get to hear their bops it was uh, nearly all of them released them on video and Eurovision tried to have like a video montage version of the contest which was just a bit of a bit of a fail, and I was so disappointed because Little Big uh, went to Eurovision. Little Big being a Russian dance pop group that is so weird that even I think they're weird. So that kind of gives you an idea right there. Well, the news I have today is you might get to see Little Big Ooh. on the Rotterdam stage uh, this coming May. I don't know for sure if Little Big uh, has been confirmed, but uh, the James Newman, the UK's entry to Eurovision, has been confirmed as this year's entry to Eurovision. So Mm -hmm. he was the contestant last year for Britain. He's going to be the contestant this year. And apparently he's not the only one. There's been a a number of countries uh, who have essentially resent the 2020 contestant. Give them a, a sort of a, a real kick at the can, 
for uh, for the Eurovision Song Contest. With a new song, I would hope. With a new song, yes. Yeah. At least James Newman is making a new song. I don't know for sure about the other ones, but uh, yeah, they they're good. I, I I like this. I like this idea. I mean, I feel like they were robbed of an opportunity to mm. kind of showcase their the I'm going to say skills here in in, in quotes. Um, oh, yes. You know, but I, I, I think this is good. This is good news. I've seen a, I, I've seen the entry for Lithuania this year. Uh, it's not great, but it's Eurovision not great, which is to say it's great. So the next story I have is about permits. Okay. Uh, you know how excited we get talking about permits, specifically sound permits. Yeah, it, it's quite amazing how many things you can shut down just by asking whether or not somebody has a permit. For example, there's a good example of when somebody probably should have had a permit. And that was David Lynn, uh, who the, the the widely renowned hate preacher, uh, and uh, Love, or what's his name? Something Love, Door Love, uh, yeah, who I were know. both spotted in Vancouver with the, the hate speech. Yeah. Um, and then they ended up breaking the leg, allegedly, uh, quote, he's still in court for this particular assault, uh, of Justin Morissette, a sports broadcaster in Vancouver. Now, the reason why I bring up that specific example, Sebastian, is because according to staff of the city of Vancouver, uh, we, all, we, we both commented at the time that the police did almost nothing to actually remove his amplified megaphone and speaker. Uh, and we were astonished because he did not have a permit for the megaphone and speaker. Well, according to a recent report from the staff at the city of Vancouver, uh, there is no really specific, there's no specificity in the noise bylaws about noises and amplification in a public space. Oh, so yeah, a bit of a loophole. So Vancouver City Council this week will be debating whether or not to update the noise bylaws specifically as a result of this uh, this incident. So now you will, there was no permit to have, and now they're going to introduce a permit. Now they're definitely going to need a permit. Uh, the unauthorized use of a sound application device is a ticketable defense, okay. uh, including $250 and a potential confiscation of said devices. Oh. Well, at this point in time, what we can confirm is there was a disagreement, and then there was a tussle, and then there was a broken leg. Yes. And then shortly after, Dolove was charged and arrested and charged with aggravated assault Mm -hmm. related specifically to the tussle and resulting broken leg. Mm -hmm. Uh, He's expected in court on March the 10th. So we'll keep an eye out, see how that goes. But yes, uh, unfortunately, Morissette hasn't been able to fully recover just yet. Um, and uh, hasn't gone back to work. Be in court, or will it be like a Zoom meeting court? It's probably a Zoom meeting. Everything's a Zoom meeting. Do you think he will be a cat? No, no, he will not be a cat. He will not be a cat. That, that All is, right. That's my favorite. Uh, that's your favorite meme right now? Yeah, well, it's my favorite COVID meme. I like it. it. I, 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 it's kind of a COVID meme. Did I tell you I did a, I did a journalism? You did the journalism. What did I you did do? Journalism. I didn't tell you in advance because I wanted to spring it on you. So the Ottawa Police Service, I am still in contact with certain officers on the inside. And they told me a thing that is, it's not exactly a secret, but it's the classic example of 
the police are doing an okay job. They're just not letting anyone know because communication is by far their biggest problem. Um, they recently introduced a third category on records. So when you're getting arrested or if they're taking a statement, you can be listed as M, F, or X. So they now have a third gender option on police records. I mean, I'm going to, I have two minds on this. Mind <laughs> one, this is good news. This is, yeah. this is bona fide day, yeah. good news. Yeah. My other mind on this is that this is a very, very, very specific request that the LGBT community put to the Ottawa Police Service about four or five years ago. Mm -hmm. And they said, look, there's all these other Ontario police uh, authorities doing it. And OPS claimed it was an issue with the feds. The feds were like, we don't know what you're talking about. So four or five years later, Ottawa police finally pulls its finger out and gets this done. So, I mean, like I said, bona fide, great news that they're now not forcing trans folks into a binary. But also, it's about damn time. Like, they're, yeah. they're not only yeah. late to the game, but they drag their feet on this. Well, I mean, here's the thing about it. I did see people say that it was a federal issue. And then, the, of course, the feds turn around and say, what are you talking about? In the end, it was actually an IT issue. The uh, police, just like many organizations, don't actually keep their own records. That's a third party that they contract to to do all their record keeping for them. Even some of the major banks have a third party who does the record keeping for them. And the, the company that did the record keeping for them, this was considered to be a product upgrade, and it just took years to get them to change their mind. And the issue is, like, why didn't the police just switch to a different third-party user? But that would have been just as long to transition as it would have been to implement. It was a whole bunch of nonsense that really came down to IT, but they also weren't exactly very apologetic about it. It was kind of like, yeah, we put in the request, dot, dot, dot. So, I mean, it was, and it happened without fanfare. You know, no announcements. I tried to find any kind of indication that this had happened. I had it confirmed by another person within the police services that I speak to. And yep, yep, it's out there. So, I mean, these things take time. Not five years, like one year. This should have taken one year. For them to say it'll take one year to upgrade the system because when you change some things in, in software, it's actually alarming how much testing you have to do to make sure it doesn't ruin other things elsewhere. But uh, that would be a one-year upgrade, not a five-year upgrade. So, I mean, it's one of those things where they had a very, very good reason, but that good reason ran out. So there's a lot of that, actually, with, with governments in general, government, um, large institutions, banks, that kind of thing, where they're like, we haven't done this yet because of very good reason. But that good reason is less true now than it was 10 years ago when you first told us. So I don't know. But yeah, that happened. So that's good. That's a good thing. But it also means that if they did that, that um, the police force, other police services in Canada that use the same service have also done that. And I haven't been able to figure out which other services have had their, uh, their record keeping upgraded. So ask your local police service, assuming you're not with a provincial or uh, federal, like if you don't use the RCMP mm -hmm. or like the uh, QPP or something like that, then, you know, you're, you may have a local service that is using this record-keeping service, and you might also have a third-party. 
Um, all right, let's jump to a song um, and then we will have the interview that you did earlier uh, today with Emmett Michael. Okay, we're going to jump in with uh, a track by Lace Ross and this is Tommy. And uh, just after that, we'll be going to the interview that you did uh, earlier today, Sebastian, with Emmett Michael. We'll be back later in the show. Strong as an ox he was Tough as a bull he had Stories and poems and dirty jokes I came in running with my brother in tow We had dirt on our knees Climbing on his feet to show Spoken, he cheated at poker. If someone got angry, he'd crack a joke. Didn't always go over, but the kids would laugh. And he'd play in the corner till he closed the gap. So we're joined here with Emmett Michael. Uh, nice to meet you. It's very nice to meet you as well. Thanks for having me. Yeah, we've been chatting for not very long, actually. I wanted to come into this cold. Um, <laughs> so tell us about yourself. Sure. Yeah. Uh, so I identify as a queer, transgender singer-songwriter from Edmonton, Alberta. And um, I, I write a lot about themes um, that apply to my life and kind of my journey. And that for me has looked like obviously transitioning. Um, I grew up in a 
in a church community. So really um, coming into who I am as a queer individual and somebody of faith. Um, I also struggled with addiction for many years and that shows up in my, in my music as well. So themes of addiction and mental health um, are, are things that are very important to me and advocating for um, holistic ways at, at dealing with those issues. Mm-hmm. Um, when I'm not doing music, I work full-time as a gardener. So that's something that I'm very passionate about as well. Um, yeah, that's a little bit about me, I guess. <laughs> Actually, I did uh, listen to quite a bit of your your music, cool. uh, at least all the stuff that I could find. And, and I did notice that faith comes up quite a bit, mm-hmm. uh, which is not a common theme uh, in the community unless it is uh, in terms of like rejection or questioning. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Where totally you seem to approach it more in terms of coming to peace with it, you know, that mm-hmm. there's there's a space to be both any variety of LGBTQ as well as mm-hmm. being a person of faith, whether it's within the religion or not. Like it, it's it's a difficult balance. How do you how, mm-hmm. how have you been navigating that and how has that been influencing your music? It's been it's as you can imagine, being both queer and Christian is a very strange dichotomy, and I understand wholeheartedly why uh, LGBTQ plus folks struggle um, with faith and religion. And like, I am not immune from that by any means. Like I didn't always approach it through a positive lens or as like a a special growth period. It was like very in the beginning, like when I realized that I was queer, it was very like devastating to me. And I rejected my faith for many, many years and kind of fell into a really, really dark place uh, for a really, really long time, like wasn't doing music, uh, wasn't taking care of myself at all. I rejected the idea of um, faith because I really, I really felt like the church and God did not accept and love me, Mm -hmm. um, which obviously later I proved myself wrong in that regard, but that took a lot of um, willingness to be open, um, healing, really evaluating um, what my religion meant to me. Mm-hmm. And like, in a way, I always say that I'm, if I could go back and change it, like I wouldn't have been born male. I'm really glad that I had to transition and go through this journey because it's made me evaluate my faith in a way that maybe other Christians wouldn't have to. Mm-hmm. And so it's really helped me to realize like what's important, uh, what I feel uh, God is really saying. And also just like what the meaning of unconditional love truly looks like. I've, I've learned a lot you know, obviously I've faced some like difficulties and rejections within the church community, but um, more overwhelmingly so when I gave the people the chance uh, and was open about stuff, more often than not, people were actually quite loving and accepting and people who, who were struggling to be were, were interested in knowing more. And, you know, a lot of people who, who are more judgmental within church spaces, it's usually because they view these things as issues and not as human beings. And once they develop a relationship with somebody in the queer community, that shifts. And there were a lot of like, I left the church for a very, very long time. And I just started going back a couple of years ago. This is really like a a recent sort of journey for me. And in going to this church, I I had the attitude of like, I'm going to go in here. I'm not going to tell anybody that I'm trans. Because at this point, I like I passed quite well. um, and, And I didn't find the need to tell anyone. But Uh, If it comes up in conversation uh, with somebody and they've already developed a relationship with me, then when I tell them, it's like too late, you already love me and now you have to deal with this. And that's sort of the attitude that I had about it. And 
more often than not, as I said, it's turned out really beautifully. And I've seen a lot of people really change their views as a result. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because most people are kind of indifferent. It doesn't really affect their own lives. They're like, oh, okay, cool. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yeah. And everyone's like that, you know, to some degree, like you're not going to be super passionate or involved in things that you don't understand or have uh, any skin in the game, you know? So yeah. Has, uh, has denomination ever come into this as a, as a point? Yeah, obviously, like, there's a vast spectrum between, like, I guess, like, Unitarian United and, like, fundamentalist evangelical types. And, like, I've, I've sort of dipped my toes in a little bit in all of those communities. I've, I'm, more often than not, I've sort of been in spaces that are right kind of in the middle. So it's usually, like, a mixed bag. You get, like, some people, and I think this is, like, any church, like, not everyone in a particular denomination will identify with the same views because people are different and have different opinions and ideals and backgrounds. And um, I've, I've found sort of like pockets of people um, with either opinion. Um, so not usually like one end of the spectrum or the other. How much would you say all of this has influenced, what, not your music in terms of the lyrics, but in terms of, of the content and the style? Sure. Yeah. I love that question. I've never been asked that before. Well, it's, it's funny. It reminds me of this time I was at a party with a lot of like um, metal heads and they were playing a lot of like screamo sort of emo music stuff, which I really loved in high school. And uh, <laughs> there was a point where somebody there was like, Oh, you're a musician. I didn't really know anyone there either. Uh, and they were like, do you want to play some of your music like through the speakers? And I'm like, Oh my gosh, these guys are going to eat me alive. Like, <laughs> <laughs> there's no way that they're going to like it. And, they started playing one of my songs, Man in the Moon, and uh, one really drunk individual came in through the door and he's like, I feel like I'm in church right now. Yeah, yeah. And it's funny because it's not even necessarily, like like you said, it's not the lyrics, but it definitely like, and I didn't even realize this until I started to release music, but people were like, I'm getting like worship music vibes. And like, now that I think about it, it totally, like there definitely is a vibe to worship music. And um, I, yeah, I wasn't surprised at all. Like I, I grew up mostly listening to worship music as opposed to secular music. And I, I actually played, that's how I started in music was playing in like church bands, both at school and at church. And so it, it totally makes sense that that would show up in my music uh, sound wise as well. It's, it's a peculiar thing. So uh, are you familiar with the, the hidden cameras? I'm not. But you may want to give them a listen. So the, okay. the idea behind them is uh, they also started off making church music. And so okay. their music is structured like Anglicans with guitars. Mm. But they sing about things like uh, shoplifting and golden showers. Oh, my gosh. I love it. So they, they have this very like, um, which kind of leads me to another question that I, I often like to ask artists uh, mm -hmm. about how they integrate their identity into their music, which actually is mm -hmm. kind of complicated because you kind of have this spectrum where on the one hand, on the one sort of like, if you're to imagine it's an axis, and on the one extreme, you have people where every single song is an I am song. So they, they sing about who they are, how they identify, mm -hmm. something mm -hmm. about themselves. What does it mean? What does it mean to be queer? What does it mean to be a woman? What does it mean to be a man? Whatever. And then on the other hand, you have people where they never sing about that, but it clearly informs things. So you have these sort of two extremes. You're like, on the one hand, it influences, and on the other hand, that's what it's about. Mm -hmm. And from listening to you, I, I have a feeling as to where you land between those two. Yeah. But okay. would, would you like to comment on, on how you integrate the, the discussion of identity with mm -hmm. creating art? 
Sure. Yeah. Uh, I, yeah. I think that's a very interesting concept and I'm looking forward to hearing what, what you feel uh, I <laughs> identify most with. But for me, like what comes up is like um, there are, I never want to identify myself like under an umbrella or a label, but I, the things that I feel and go through in my experience kind of inform identity and who I am and how I um, label myself. And so I think like when I approach music and writing, I never really think about like prior to writing something like, what do I want to communicate here? Who do I want to say that I am? It's always just like, it, I approach songwriting very much like a journaling process. Okay. And usually like, it's not at a time where I sit down and decide I'm going to write. It's just like usually the most inconvenient times, like when I'm at work or like trying to sleep, it'll just like pop into my head. Usually at a point in, in time where I'm really going through something heavy uh, mm -hmm. or there's something really on my heart, which of course has a lot to do like with things that um, inform my identity and who I am and those things. So, um, I would understand why it would like come across that way, I guess, but it's never, there's never like an intention set, uh, for like what I want to communicate. I've always approached it just like, I'm going to write down what I feel and what I'm going through and, uh, see what happens. Okay. If that makes sense. Yeah. You know, that makes sense. Yeah. I mean, if, if I were to put like a value on it, like uh, between these two extremes, I'd say you're about a third of the way closer to the um more explicit side so th there's okay. there's more there's commentary there that that's pretty transparent but it's not mm. it's not completely laid out like it is incorporated yes. into a narrative it's a, it's about something yeah. else but it's made clear yes and yeah and i've heard a lot of songs uh, and songwriters who really like lay it out there specifically like uh it, but i i really like also to write in a way that um, you know, is explicit, but that people can relate their own stories to. Yeah. Um, I think that that's really important in music that people are able to see themselves in your music. Um, yeah. There's a lot of artists out there who do this sort of like indirect poetic kind mm. of uh, uh, metaphorical imagery storytelling thing. And, and totally. Yeah. I, and I love the, the like mystery of trying to dissect what a song is about, but at the same time, I also really appreciate it when like a song, there's like a lyric in there that is like, Oh my gosh, it's like the song was written for me. And I think that 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 can be really cool too on the other side of things. Mm. I like individual lines that are just striking. Totally. Yeah, absolutely. There's a line from a Joanna Newsom song, which is, I've read the right books to interpret your looks. You were striking me down with the palm of your eye, Ooh. which is very like, I've, I've mentioned that to people and they have no idea what the hell that means. And other people yeah. are like, oh, I know exactly what that is. Yeah, totally. And that's the, that's the beauty of lyrics and music is, is not everyone's going to get it. And it's not, it, it's not really saying something important if everybody does get it. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, it's pretty neat. But I mean, sometimes it's like like um, uh, narrative songs, like storytelling songs. Mm -hmm. You, you kind of don't really want it to be too up to interpretation. You know, this is the ballad yeah. of, I don't know, Jimmy the Fisher or whatever. Like it's it's pretty transparent, you know? Right, totally. Yeah, There's I think there's a place for, for either end of that spectrum. And um, I think I, I land somewhere along it uh, on differing ends at times. It really just depends, but I can appreciate both sides of that for sure. How has the uh, music industry been for you so far? Oh man. Um, well, obviously it's shifted a lot as of the last, uh, you know, since COVID hit. Yeah. Um, it's, 
it's been weird for me because I really only, I really only started to get my life together enough to really pursue music about three or four years ago. So Mm -hmm. I haven't really been in the game for very long. I adopted the attitude of like, I'm just going to like show up to open mics and play some gigs around town. And if like somebody discovers me, that's awesome. And like, I didn't take it seriously. And I think a lot of that is because of like um, insecurity and not really having enough faith in myself to believe that this was something that I could do seriously. And that sort of started to shift. um, Yeah. A a couple of years ago when I got booked for Canmore Folk Fest and um, the person who booked me was like, you have to have some sort of album to like release for the festival and community members here in Edmonton all rallied together to fundraise enough money for me to be able to record this little EP. And I was like, oh my gosh, all of these people believe in me so much. Like maybe I should take a crack at believing in myself enough to know that I can, I can do this. And that really fueled me from that point on. And like also just realizing who I am as a person and going through the things that I needed to in my personal life has really allowed me to like take music seriously and, and really pursue it. Um, so since then, I, I had just started to sort of play larger venues and I felt like I was really gaining traction, had a bunch of gigs booked and then COVID was a thing. Oh yeah. And uh, <laughs> so I was like, okay, I felt like I was just sort of getting a handle on things and, and it, everything, the whole landscape totally shifted. And there's obviously like a lot of negatives to that, but when looking at the positives for me, it's like, I was never really great at social media. I never really cared much for it, but this year has really helped me to like figure out uh, like who I, who I want to be on social media and like helped me to connect with other people uh, who, who resonate with my story and the things that I care about. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's really helped me to broaden my audience and also just broaden like my network uh, of friends. I really consider those two things one in the same. Uh, like being able to establish and make connections with people who not only appreciate my music, but like I've, I've really gotten to know people online and that's been really, really cool for me because I might not otherwise have had the time to be able to devote, devote to social media and to getting to know people in that way. And the other thing that I've been really uh, jumping into is like the live streams. And I know it's, it's not the same and I sure do miss live performing. There's nothing like it, but it's, it's really cool to be able to like, be live and to see like people communicating with you and like leaving comments while you're playing and like you can interact with people uh in a way that you couldn't at a live show like people can't just shout at you from (laughs) from the (laughs) audience it's just not a thing that would work so like I think that that is very cool and I've been really leaning into like doing monthly live shows I just had one last night to celebrate uh the release of God Shaped Hole and um it it was absolutely incredible. I had a bunch of people who had, who had never heard of me before that landed on my socials and decided to take a chance and, and watch the show. And it's, just, yeah, it's an incredible opportunity to be able to connect with new people. Yeah. And it's, it's a very different beast now because it's not just Edmonton that you're playing for anymore. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah, and I've, I've met several people from uh, like the UK, United States, like all over the place. Mm. Um, and, and that's been really cool too, because obviously like you have a lot broader of a network when you're using social platforms as opposed to just in person. So that's been really neat. It's kind of interesting how, the music industry is now sort of, I mean, it's been doing this for a while now, but in the past year, it's become even more obvious that it's kind of going into different streams where on the one hand you have full studio albums Mm. and then you have sort of a second stream, which is more like you release a whole lot of singles 
and sometimes mm. release multiple songs on a on a single. Totally. And then you've got like this new emerging crowd, which has been kind of around for a while, but it's really picked up steam in the past year of like using platforms like TikTok or totally back in the day would have been Vine. Yeah. Uh, and you, you release little like 20 second snippets and sometimes songs explode and sometimes songs explode. And then you realize those 20 seconds were the only good 20 seconds. Totally. Which is kind of a downfall of TikTok. It's really <laughs> yeah. And it's being in the middle, like having the sort of singles approach. It works quite well, I've noticed for yep. more independent artists because like the album format, if you don't have an album in you, you have songs in you, you shouldn't feel that studio pressure to go into mm -hmm. and generate, you know, 12 to 15 songs. Yeah, it's it's definitely like you hit the nail right on the head when you say like the landscape has shifted so much from like that expectation of having like a fully produced full length album, mm -hmm. as opposed to just like consistently releasing singles. And I've sort of seen like this overall acceptance of like, uh, quantity over quality and that's not to say that like people releasing singles that they're like bad or whatever I just like I've noticed um, there's less of like this pressure on like making sure you have this perfectly fully produced mixed and mastered album and like people can just at home at their home studio with a very average microphone kind of put something together and that that can be on Spotify and, and sometimes it works really well and people are doing crazy things from from their home studios and that's really cool but it is interesting to like see that shift because before like people didn't have the means to just release stuff on their own and to release yeah. whatever they wanted like you needed to be signed to a label um, and to release like an album in order to uh, like make it in the industry and so I actually think it's very cool that like independent artists now have the ability to post their music to whatever platform on their own terms and they're not under like the guise of like you have to or they're not under the influence of anyone else in terms of like what kind of content they have to produce or if it's good enough or whatever and I think that that is like very very cool and there's a lot of like authentic artistry within that by that same or on the other side of that coin though is like, I personally really appreciate a fully produced full-length album. I like the, the journey of, like, the intentionality behind, like, the, the um, order of songs. And, like, for me, like, I'm a CD collector. Uh, like, yeah, yeah. I like physical copies of CD, CDs. I really like, like, the artwork that goes with it. Um, mixed mediums are, are just, like, such a cool thing to me. Um, and so, yeah, I think like there are aspects of each that I can really appreciate, but I, I do love like a good full length album. And that's the approach I've taken like with my own music, mm -hmm. but like at the same time, I think it's important to include people like in the journey of that. So like I'll post like YouTube videos of songs that I've like just written and kind of be like, what do you think of this? And it's good to gauge then like, does your audience even like the song? Like, is it worth putting on an album? Um, yeah. All right. So thank you for giving me a part of your Saturday. Yeah. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. We're going to play your new track. Tell us a little bit about it. Uh, yeah, sure. So I wrote this one about coming out as transgender in the church and what I believe uh, unconditional love truly looks like. And where can people find it? They can find it anywhere that you can stream music. And there is a music video out for it on YouTube in which several other queer individuals from North America participated in it. And I think it's definitely worth checking out. All right, then. Awesome. So uh, thank you very much. Yeah, no, thank you so much for having me. So long, farewell, goodbye. I've got a war still left to fight. Tooth and nail, I... 
Welcome back to Cancri, home of Canada's queer media. Thank you for the interview you did, uh, Sebastian. I think that was, uh, it, it definitely was quite enlightening. 
we had a we had a good time actually. A lot of good chemistry. After that, uh, we did play the track "God Shaped Hole" by Emmett Michael, uh, which was the track that we had been discussing all along. And I think I may have forgotten to preface it during the interview because we talked about it before we started recording. But anyway, so "God Shaped Hole" is his uh, latest album, uh, latest uh, single that he put out. Um, and uh, there'll be uh, hopefully more coming out of uh, Edmonton and Emmett Michael and on the internet, actually. Um, I'll try to find, because he did mention that he can stream, that he's streaming some of his uh, live performances now. And I don't know why I did not ask what the link was so that we could help promote him. So I will get that information. We'll, uh, we'll bring that out next week. Excellent. Now, did you know, I, I'm going to, did you know that the, the UN has ruled against this incredibly socialist, almost uh, uh, bastion of human rights, uh, Northern European country? Who do you think in Northern Europe would be found to have violated rules by the UN? Well, there's no socialist countries in Europe, except for Romania. And nor- Romania is not in the north. But Americans frequently say that Norway is socialist. And Norway keeps saying, stop calling us socialist, bro. So I'm going to go with, so- with Norway. No, the actual answer was was Finland. I meant socialist as in socialism, not as in the, the, the system of, of politics of uh, a socialist state. Uh, just a- to clarify that point <laughs> there. But yes, the UN has ruled against Finland in a recent case uh, that uh, actually related to Russia. Uh, of course, the real villain here is Russia, not Finland. Um, but essentially, the Committee on the Rights of the Child concluded that Finnish authorities had failed to account for the interests of the child uh, from a lesbian couple, uh, two mothers of this child, who had fled Russia and the don't say gay law, the anti, uh, uh, anti-propaganda law. Mm-hmm. Now in Russia, the don't say gay law or the anti-propaganda law has been so loosely interpreted that even having a child as a gay person is now being perceived as a, 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 crim- a crime uh, in Russia. So these this couple uh, very appropriately uh, ran away. They actually started to uh, have conversations about uh, taking children from queer couples, and that led to a quite a sudden exodus of queer couples uh, from Russia, who were, were rightly worried yep. that their child would be seized by um, the equivalent of the Children's Aid Society in uh, in Russia. With the only the only element there being is that uh, said couple raising the child were of the same same sex or gender. Mm. So the reason why Finland got into hot water is because when they were reviewing the application of asylum by the uh, the two mothers, uh, they did not take into account the impact that going back there would have on the child which uh, there was a lot of bullying that was happening before they fled because this child had two two mothers. Um, it was having a, a, an impact on his uh, development. Um, and also they, they were very much put at risk by having gone back. Um, and of course, the, the publicity that, uh, that comes with it. 
So yes, that was the the sort of landmark case. It's also the first time that the UN has made this kind of decision in an asylum-related case um, where the risks of a mother's sexual orientation and the family bond was at the core of the finding. Right. Okay. So very exciting and precedent setting. Now, speaking of big legal decisions that happened this week, uh, the International Court, the Inter-American Commission on Human Rights, the Inter-American Commission on Human Rights. Now, this commission ruled against uh, anti-gay laws in the Caribbean before, and we've seen a number of Caribbean countries uh, repeal or remove their anti-gay laws as a result of decisions by the Inter-American Commission on Human Rights. We've been following this case uh, for a while now. Um, there were two people, Gareth Henry and Simone Edwards, who were essentially drummed out of uh, out of uh, Jamaica. Um, Henry actually sought asylum in Canada after a police officer pummeled him in front of a crowd of 200 people. The violence and the sort of homophobic vitriol that exists in some parts of Jamaica is absolutely astonishing. Mm. There was a study in 2019 that estimated that homophobia and discrimination and the anti-gay laws in Jamaica cost the economy about 11 billion a year um, through costs to health, cost to mental health, the complete lack of any LGBT tourism, because, of course, they don't have a stellar record. Um, anyway, all of this is to say that uh, these two individuals took the case, uh, Gareth Henry and Simone Edwards, took the discrimination and the anti-gay laws uh, to the Inter-American Commission on Human Rights, who have now ruled that Jamaica's ban on gay sex, which is a old British penal code, uh, should be immediately uh, removed. Mm. Now, the Inter-American Inter Commission on Human Rights rulings uh, aren't binding. Uh, Jamaica doesn't have to do this, uh, but they're standing internationally, they're standing with the commission. Um, all of it is, is gonna be you know, at risk if they continue to ignore this decision. So, I mean, these things, they, they they have long-term effects, even if they're not immediately obvious. So, I mean, yeah, this is not the kind of thing you want sticking around. And I even remember, actually, a couple of years ago, we, uh, we interviewed Maurice Tomlinson about the first Pride in Jamaica. And uh, the way he described it was the venue, they had to double-check that it had multiple exits in case everyone had to evacuate immediately, and everyone was encouraged to wear masks. So it was like, they, they, they dressed it up like a Mardi Gras thing. Do you remember all this? Yeah, yeah. They handed out masks and they they made it like a party, but it was still like, it was not great. But on the other hand, they did have a pride festival. So people were excited to at least get that. But yeah, it's uh, the, you hear stories sometimes out of Jamaica that are not, not super great. Yeah, it's certainly quite horrific. Some of the experiences that folks in Jamaica have had to endure as a result of this archaic British penal code uh, that Jamaica has done nothing to change since their independence. Yeah, uh, yeah. Hopefully now they will, um, now that there is a weight of, uh, you know, uh, continental law that uh, that speaks to why this should be removed. 
uh, the fact that trade relations, like you said, are at risk, and the fact that it is costing billions of dollars to the economy in Jamaica to have this in place uh, mm-hmm. is certainly quite, uh, quite something that they need to address. Now, the last story I have for today, which I'm kind of, it, it's a hopeful story. Um, and that relates to the Equalities Act in the United States. Are right. you familiar with it? I, I, I know the, uh, the headlines of it. I don't know the details. So the Equalities Act was this sort of landmark piece of legislation, um, almost like the, the Civil Rights Act kind of level of, of, um, of, of import to the yep. United States. And it was introduced in Congress uh, a couple of years ago, if not last year, maybe, I think it was 2019, um, where it just died at the Senate uh, because the Republican control of the Senate, particularly Mitch McConnell, just would never even, it didn't even let it see the light of day. It just yeah. didn't go anywhere. Um, and anyway, with, uh, with uh, the Democrats now having the trifecta Congress, uh, the Senate and uh, the presidency, uh, the Democrats now have a majority, well, they have a tie-break vote uh, majority in the Senate, which is really what has stopped this law from getting anywhere. Yeah. yeah. Um, this particular law would amend several civil rights laws, including the Civil Rights Act, the Fair Housing Act, and so on. Essentially, it would ban discrimination based on sexual orientation and gender identity in employment, in housing, education, access to credit, jury service, federal funding, public accommodations. It also will clarify that the Religious Freedom Act of 1994 does not provide cover for you to then just discriminate because you uh, you feel compelled by your religion. Something there about healthcare as well, I think. Well, healthcare was covered elsewhere. They they were really covering the gaps that were left here. I mean, Uh, what this really means, and we've actually seen, uh, you know, since January, droves of legislation um, trying to ban uh, trans folks or or same-sex couples from public housing. Uh, They wanted, under Trump, they wanted uh, uh, contractors with the federal government to be able to refuse to, to service certain populations it's just quite horrific what they were able to get away with. Some things that would be utterly unimaginable uh, here in Canada. Uh, these discriminations were broadly hashed out in the 90s and, and, and uh, the 2000s through several court cases and legislation. Um, so this is a big, big deal. Uh, and it would affect you know, the whole 360 million Americans uh, if it's brought into effect. It's being tabled this week. Um, and it is likely to move quite quickly, uh, and we may be able to comment next week on whether or not it has passed. Okay. Looking forward to that. Well, we will uh, continue to keep folks up to date. Um, I just want to give our listeners a heads up. I'm hoping we can talk about the TV show It's a Sin. Um, it was a it has it has just blown wide open a whole ton of records in the UK, um, and it is expected to do equally as well in North America. It is available on Prime Video in Canada. I'm not sponsored to say that. I just want folks to know uh, that next week I'm hoping that we will be able to talk about this particular groundbreaking show. Um, we just have to get our guests lined up uh, ahead of time for that. Uh, all right. Well, that's all we got time for this week. Actually, during the last break, I looked it up, and 
Emmett actually did tell me, and I just it slipped my mind. Uh, his events are uh, the the live events that he does are actually listed on his website on uh, EmmettMichaelMusic.com, and you can actually see the calendar of events with clickable links. It's pretty accessible, so you can you can track him down that way to see his live uh, live music. Excellent. Well, we're playing out with Light of Fire by Jeffrey Stryker. I've been Luke Smith. And I've been Sebastian. And thank you for listening. Bags are packed, some regrets. Gonna wiggle around inside my head. But it ain't gonna be a headline in yesterday's news. can whisper the head has to choose I'm gonna make a change gonna light a fire sing it on out like a preacher to the choir gonna start with a spark let the flame Yeah.